You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Welcome to Pharmacy Talk with IBM Watson Health, where we will explore everything surrounding the future of pharmacy, from the use of data, AI, and evidence to drug shortages and even careers. On today's episode, Todd Yuri, CEO of the Pharmacy Podcast Network, interviews Scott Nelson, Whitley Yee, and R.C. Bavsar. Artificial technology can help pharmacists improve the speed and efficiency of manually intensive tasks, verifying medications, counting uh, tablets and pills, maintaining adequate staff and their inventory. And this is also while ensuring patient safety and adherence as the priority. The priority of a pharmacist is safety. They're the last line of defense in the health system, in specialty pharmacy, in community pharmacy. I'm excited to bring to the Pharmacy Podcast Nation talks about technology, leveraging technology in this specific conversation, artificial intelligence. IBM Watson and Micromedics has been around for years. They've been leaders, as we all know, in technology, in multiple uh, facets, multiple um, settings, healthcare, industry. And it's exciting to have people come to the Pharmacy Podcast Nation to really talk about how does artificial intelligence impact us as patients? We're all patients. And then more importantly, to this show and to the community that we serve, our pharmacists. So I want to start off first by introducing our guests. I'm going to start off with Scott Nelson. Welcome to the Pharmacy Podcast, Scott. Thank you. So excited to be here. Scott, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Sure. I'm Scott Nelson. I went to pharmacy school at the University of Utah, after which I did a two-year fellowship in medical informatics with the VA system and a master's in biomedical informatics at Utah. Now I am at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, where I am the program director for our master's of science in applied clinical informatics and also assistant professor in the Department of Biomedical Informatics and I do uh, most of my work in operations in our health IT department. Excellent. We also have R.C. Bavsar. Welcome. Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, I'm so happy to be here and to be able to speak with uh, you all. Uh, I'm Arthi Babsar. I am a clinical program director within the IBM Micromedics Watson business unit. And I've been a clinical program director for um, about 10 plus years or in those roles and involved in health technology. Uh, the best way to describe what I do on a, almost a day-to-day -day basis is more like a medical science liaison, but in health tech instead of in um, pharmaceutical industry. Uh, but so that means that on any given day, my uh, roles are different. My previous life before I joined health tech was in um, inpatient hospital pharmacy as a clinical program director at a large health system here in Central Florida, where I live. And I was also their medication safety officer um, in an eight campus health system. And so I've had pharmacy leadership under my belt. Um, clinical leadership, and then health technology came along with on-the-job training, and I've um, really had a fantastic opportunity being under the IBM Watson umbrella to learn and uh, flourish in what does um, AI and health technology bring to our practitioners on a daily basis, and how can we um, assist them with the work that they do. So I'm looking forward to our discussion today. Thank you so much. And our third guest is Whitley Yee. Welcome, Whitley. Please um, give us some background in your participation in today's discussion. Absolutely, yeah. And thanks so much uh, for having me. I'm excited about our conversation today. Um, so I'm um, Whitley Yee, and I'm a clinical pharmacist by training. So I did my PGY2 in ambulatory care. And my real passion has been the leverage, how do we leverage AI in direct clinical care? And from there, I've um, joined the health tech startup world. And so currently work within clinical operations at a healthcare tech startup, um, really serving as a subject matter expert 
um, in the consumer healthcare space and think about how we use AI to help drive behavior change. And then also teach at the University of Colorado, looking at how we integrate technology topics into the existing curriculum, and as well as kind of teach um, clinical decision-making skills or evidence-based decision-making utilizing um, AI and how that impacts those decisions. Um, and then thirdly, I've also am a co-founder of the AI Collective, uh, which is an online resource that's really designed to help inspire pharmacists and students on how to get involved in learning about AI in healthcare. Um, I think this is such an important topic and often there's not a, a lot of resources out there. And so um, part of what I do is try to think of like how we can inspire these conversations like the one today. I like this. This is time to demystify artificial intelligence. When I say that, and I've had conversations with people like John Nosta, who's a digital health philosopher, Gil Bash, who runs the Finn Partners um, Public Relations and Communications Directives. And, and I've always said, you know, we need to start understanding how this really um, impacts the patient. And when you start backing up from the patient, which is the end goal, which is the most important aspect of healthcare, you start touching the providers, you start touching the technologies that they're using. I wanna talk about incremental versus transformational applications. And that is how we're using artificial intelligence to transform the way we're making clinical decisions or using to reinforce existing clinical decision-making. And I wanna make a point that this should also be evidence-based practice. So I'm going to turn this over to Scott first to kick us off. Yeah, sure. Thank you. So um, as far as most AI in healthcare, I would say is more in the incremental kind of space. Um, it has actually been around for a really long time. Artificial intelligence is really just making the ability for the computer to perform some sort of task that typically requires human cognition. And so if you look at a lot of the tools that we are currently using in healthcare, like different predictive models, such as the CHADS2 score or the QSOFA or the Framingham risk score, those are all basic um, predictive models using a re linear regression or a logistic regression. Now we're trying to get more into like a deeper machine learning space um, that's more sophisticated but still the application in healthcare is really narrow. So that just means that the system can do one thing pretty well, um, but not something else. It's like you can have a model that does really good at predicting readmissions, but you're not able to use that same model to predict kidney failure or to have a conversation about the weather. That's a good point. And, and anyone that's listening could really understand um, how that would pertain to just everyday life. Um, RC, could you kind of expand upon the difference between incremental and transformational applications and the usage of AI, and specifically even in pharmacy, which is interesting that your background in health system pharmacy as the, um, as the person that was in charge of medication safety, I think of that as well as trip points to be able to grab the attention of our clinicians and our pharmacists in the hospital setting, but could you kind of expand upon that? Sure, absolutely. So, you know, when I think of incremental AI, I think of efficiency gains. How can we look at massive volumes of data and start um, having the artificial intelligence review that information and making the connections for us? So uh, I would say that uh, an example that, you know, we use today is Ask Watson. Um, that's an incremental AI application. It's actually taking AI and doing data crawling across a large volume of micrometics information to deliver a response or an answer for clinical decision support more efficiently. And so we, um, you know, think of that as um, more of efficiency and, and helping the practitioner get their work done. We see AI being used in finance for that way, for operations, for logistics and business. Um, and, and it really can be transformative, though, um, when you think about the wealth of data that's being used at, or reviewed for data around 
uh, research or for clinical evaluation, or we think about how data is being um, connecting the dots with uh, genetic uh, drug therapy and are there genes that we could address or support with different um, drug therapies. So there's a lot of ways where you can see that a incremental use of AI can start becoming transformational as you add layers of data or complexity into it. And so um, I, I, we're starting to make headway where we're being able to grow out of that um, incremental and really, I feel like we're on the precipice of really transformational applications between speed of um, the computers we're using and data or free data or volume of data being more available for us to be able to start incorporating, which will allow an AI application to start evolving and growing more incrementally. I think Whitley, you may have some comments on um, transformational in the future that really kind of build on this discussion. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and one of the things that I always, you know, think about that it's, I mean, you know, this technology in many ways has been around, you know, for a long time. And usually when you, when we think about things that are transformational, it's not really, it's not the technology itself, but it's really more so like how it is applied that really determines, you know, what kind of innovative change it's going to have. Um, when we think of like clinical decision-making, you know, we have our input data that we use to drive a decision and, you know, reiterating what Scott has said, a lot of our existing models are just trying to improve upon our existing decision-making models. We're trying to create AI that just takes the same input data we already have and tries to make the same decisions that we make. And I'm really interested that I to see how we can shift the focus so that we're using AI to actually change the kind of data that we have available to us so that we can change the decision space itself so that we're able to make different kinds of decisions and we're not limited by what we currently have. Um, and even thinking about, I think, AI from a like healthcare um, or care delivery perspective, you know, a lot of a lot of things we're doing right now are still working within our existing care delivery models, even with certain digital therapeutics that leverage AI, for instance, still require um, you to go and get a prescription for these um, these therapeutics and then have it be monitored in your kind of in your classical or your traditional setting. And so we we have the same. So even though the idea is that with digital therapeutics, you could potentially increase access to care or be able to provide um, more accessible treatment for some things, we're still coming up against the exact same limitations with care de with care delivery um, when things still require prescriptions or have that um, have that barrier to care. Um, and then, and so I think the other, I mean, the other thing is, you know, one, we um, having these different like novel data inputs. So when we think about, I mean, one of the big things that AI has also been able to do is help us to monitor, like have continuous monitoring or continuous data that we're able to monitor. And so this ideally in the future will allow us to be able to provide more proactive continuous care by allowing us to, you know, to be able to monitor someone's QTC, for instance, continuously and not requiring someone to go in and get an EKG. That type of data will allow us to kind of shift the way that we think about practicing medication or practicing medicine and like medication management in general. I want to make a point to our listeners right now, just as testimony to the importance of pharmacists being involved in clinical decisions, uh, treatment follow-up, and how AI is making an impact. We have three doctors of pharmacy, doctors that are concentrating on patient care and the use of AI, Dr. Bavsar, Dr. Yi, Dr. Nelson, in this conversation, and the ability to tap into your experiences to this point 
And I think of some of the limitations that are are here now. I have a big imagination. I'm a science fiction fan. So when I think of, as we said before we started recording about my father using his uh, his device uh, attached to Amazon, that I don't want to say the name because that she's going to activate in my office right now. <laughs> um, but he uses that AI device to to give him a uh, an indicator when it's time to actually take his dose for the for the two times a day and it's very interesting that that is in its most simple form it's not digging into specialty pharmacy it's not digging into um misc uh, risk mitigation where is where we're actually where it's going but i want to ask um i want to ask ask dr yi can you kind of expand upon you mentioned it but i want to dig into the ai limitations and considerations that our pharmacy students and practitioners really need to be aware of at this point. Absolutely. So I think, you know, when it comes to AI, it's about understanding, like, what kinds of things does AI do really well? What is it good at? And then what is it bad at? Um, AI is not great at common sense. It's not great at just being able to apply um, common sense everyday knowledge. It has to be trained in very specific kind of very narrow applications. Um, the other thing about AI is it's not, it's not good at um, compassion or morals or, um, or generalization. And so when we think about, you know, ethics, everything that AI learns, it learns from what it's been exposed to. And so it's going to learn from all of the existing bias in our data, and it's only going to be able to replicate what it's already been shown based on what it's been trained on. So I think that it's important to understand we are limited by the training data that we're able to put in. Um, it's only as good as what we're able to able to train it to do. Um, and this is where, you know, when we think about diversity inclusion becomes really key. We have to be able to understand where bias exists and how to how to try to mitigate that both in how we prep the underlying data but also in how we design our models as well that leads me to the next idea and question that i'm having and that is how do we democratize ai artificial intelligence really making it more accessible to our clinicians and students Scott, what do you think of that? And, and where are we at at this point in the evolution of using artificial intelligence? So great question. Um, as far as how do we spread AI to others, it really requires a collaboration between the data scientists that are creating these models and the clinicians to have a partnership. There's a lot of discussion about how do we increase um, education in informatics or education and kind of these statistical processes or artificial intelligence models into the curriculum in pharmacy schools. One of the things that we really run into as a challenge though, is that the curriculum in pharmacy schools is actually like really jam packed currently and focuses on the clinical aspects of pharmacy as it rightly should. Um, the other challenge is that we frankly just don't have enough people or faculty that are able to teach these concepts. So I think that for most people that are interested in AI, what they're gonna to have to do is go and seek additional education somewhere um, outside of pharmacy school for a lot of people. There are some pharmacy schools that have like a joint master's in health information. Um, there's other programs that have master's in medical informatics or even degrees in data scientists. And there's a lot of free resources out on the internet from places like Google and Amazon to learn how to create um, predictive models or machine learning and how to learn that kind of information. So there's a lot of stuff out there. It's just knowing where to go and how to apply and use that information. And then if you don't mind, I was thinking about back to the incremental stuff. I think a really great example of the transformation from incremental to transformative is like what we've seen with electronic health records. So initially electronic health records were basically electronic forms of the paper chart. So there's a section for the meds, a section for the problems. It looked 
like a paper chart turned electronic. Now we're seeing a lot more of the cool things that we can do um, now that we're not limited to paper. And so we can bring like multiple concepts together, display information in new context aware ways and stuff. And, and that's really having an impact in transforming the way that we care for our patients. With AI, some of the things that I'm excitedly looking forward to in the future are a lot of like the voice assistants or digital assistants um, that are really going to change the way that we interact with computers um, and allow us to have more focus on the patient and just having a conversation with the patient. And then the computer can listen in and um, extract out the pertinent information, uh, try to answer questions with some sort of context behind them. The, the challenge is that computers are not very good at context, so it takes a lot of work and a lot of learning. Um, but eventually, I think we're going to get to a transformative part there of how we actually interact um, with our computers and therefore how we interact with our patients, too. Scott, thanks for that comment on the differences between incremental and transformational and application in the patient care arena. Um, it gives us an opportunity at this point to really uh, kind of shift a little bit and talk about AI hype and understand what are the different myths and misconceptions around AI. Think that there's um you know a, a common misconception that AI can do everything and or possibly take over the care of a patient, which we all know is, is really a, a strong misconception. So I think we have an opportunity to tell our audience a little bit more about um, the realities of AI and where it works, where it doesn't work, or and, and dispel some of those myths and misconceptions. Sure, yeah, that's a great point. And if you look at the history of AI in healthcare, there have been these cycles of hype and then freeze um, and it's happened several times in the past. Now that we have a lot more data available through electronic health records, there's been a ton of hype in, and interest again in artificial intelligence. Um, one of the things that I really think explains kind of the myths or the concerns that a lot of people have is a quote from Kevin Scott. He is a chief technology officer at Microsoft. And he said that as soon as you utter the words artificial intelligence to an intelligent human being, they start making associations about their own intelligence, about what's easy or hard for them to do. And then they superimpose that, those expectations on these software systems, end quote. So it's true that many people uh, make these associations of, well, I can do this, I'm intelligent to do this then what about the computers being able to do that too? And a lot of that fear is portrayed in movies, um, but we are honestly so incredibly far away from some sort of generalized artificial intelligence. Um, and a lot of other concerns that I hear from people are like, well, machines are gonna take over our jobs and, and replace pharmacists and stuff. Honestly, where we're at right now, I'm more concerned about overpopulation on Mars than I am about AI taking away pharmacist jobs. There's just so much that pharmacists do um, with the context, compassion, um, that a computer just can't do. Yeah, I would, yeah, I completely agree with that. I think there, there's always that concern that it's gonna take over, uh, take over our jobs and I once heard, you know, it said that, yeah, AI will, you know, potentially take over jobs about, or that those who don't know how to use AI, their jobs will be replaced by those who do know how to use AI or leverage it. I, it's still, I mean, we still have a long ways to go, I think, where we're really able to, um, to leverage it. And one of the things that we don't always think about, too, or one of the, mis, you know, misconceptions is that, you know, once you have once you build, you know, you build a model, then um, then it's complete, or that our models will always stay can stay consistent. And I think over time, you know, is if we start making or as we start making decisions based on deep learning models, for instance, you know, a lot of those deep learning, you know, models they learn from the data that they see, which a lot of it is based on you know that data generated by human behavior. And as then human behavior changes then the data landscape changes as well. And so then the data that goes into those models actually becomes less accurate over time. And so every model that we create 
over time is going to become less and less accurate. And we have to have ways to account for that and think about how we will sort of, how we will put guardrails in and audit that over time. Also to add to that, I mean, uh, there's also this myth that these algorithms and models are going to solve our most complicated problems. The truth is those complicated and challenging problems are still really complicated and challenging, even with artificial intelligence. And I think that's just another reason why I see pharmacist jobs being around for a really long time. And an analogy kind of comparable to this is again with the electronic health record. Um, when people were starting to implement computerized provider order entry, the CPOE, um, I heard some comments of like, well, we're not going to need pharmacists anymore because the computer will transmit our orders. And a lot of pharmacists spend a lot of their time transcribing orders from paper to put into the computer or things like that. Um, when CPOE came around, it did replace the need for a lot of that transcription to happen. However, it in it introduced new challenges um, related to the CPOE itself that we need pharmacists for. And it freed up a lot of time for our pharmacists to go and do things that were more fulfilling, like be more out with the clinical care teams and be on rounds and do more patient, direct patient care kind of things. I, I would see AI is really gonna help to offload those really mundane tasks that we don't like doing that are super repetitive and allow us to focus more on um, the patient, the compassion, the higher level functioning and reasoning that we have to do, solving through those um, moral dilemmas and abstraction of concepts and, and things like that. So, I mean, if there's somebody that all they wanna do is transcribe orders or all they want to do is like um, verify orders or things like that. Yeah, there's going to be a change in their job, but pharmacists are always going to be around and we have lots of different skill sets that will be used. You know, I want to add a couple of thoughts to that around. Um, the first thing I wanted to add is, you know, if you're interested in AI and healthcare, where can you learn to get more information um, outside of your academic realm? And we have a link um, in our IBM uh, universe uh, that says AI and healthcare by IBM. It's a fantastic link. We can make sure we send that over to you all. Uh, and, and it's just a, almost a 101 primer on use cases and examples of what how AI and healthcare works. And uh, what it does reinforce, though, is that we always think of AI as augmented intelligence. Um, versus artificial intelligence. And that way you're leveraging that, the strengths of computers and clinicians together to obtain those improved outcomes for patients. And Whitley and Scott have both mentioned this. And when we were actually preparing for this presentation discussion, we were all laughing about how we've, all three of us have been involved in looking at data sets that were being used to guide the creation of an AI algorithm or a data analysis. And we were laughing because as pharmacists, we were so critical in the evaluation of the, the creation of the data set and the, the algorithm because of the drug mapping. You know, you needed to include not just the name of the generic drug, but you needed to include the route of administration, the drug classification, and sometimes a drug can be classified in two different drug classes. You know, coding of the drug, are you using an NDC code or an RX norm code? Um, so all of these nuances that are in the back end of a system that of a product that's being designed or by or a product that, that is being presented to you as a practicing pharmacist, you know so much technical information that you're able to ask these great questions and go, is that data set appropriate and valid? And do we need to alter it, modify it, or enhance it so that we have the best information going into the algorithm so we can get the outcomes intended out of the AI that's being built for us? 
And so these are all extremely important parts and reasons why pharmacists can become just great uh, advocates and contributors to the build out of the AI and um, the medication management space. When I think of artificial intelligence, I am thinking of the future, even though it's here now, the future is now. But going back to a comment that Dr. Yi made and being the co-founder of the AI Collective, you probably have access to pharmacy students on, on many different levels, including even internships, externships, um, appy rotations. Talk about the future. Talk about our inspiring and empowering the next generation of pharmacists and how AI will impact their abilities to go deeper into chronic disease states or research or um, treatment. Kind of expand upon that. Absolutely. I, it's, I think it's so important, as we mentioned, to really demystify this concepts for pharmacy students. Um, one of the things that I always like to help pharmacy students understand is that many of the stuff, many of the concepts they've already learned apply to artificial intelligence and apply to deep learning algorithms. The concepts that you use when you're, you know, thinking about evidence-based medicine and how you, you know, evaluate methodology or how you look at whether even if something, you know, is statistically significant, um, is it clinically significant? Or if you're looking at a clinical trial, you know, you always need to look at, you know, well, do the results of the, you know, what does the patient population look like um, that got the, this treatment in a trial? Does the patient population in this clinical trial match the patient sitting in front of me? And that helps inform whether the, this, the results of this trial or not could be applicable to the, to the patient. And the, all of those same things apply with deep learning models as well. Like you don't always have to... Um, when you're thinking, when you're thinking from a clinical standpoint, you don't always have to know all of the minor nuances of, you know, how the actual algorithm is built, but do know, do need to know how do you actually apply it in practice and what are the limitations that you need to be aware of. As we move forward, you know, we've, we're really in the air right now, you know, guideline-based therapy where, you know, therapy is you know based on guidelines that are from trial trials that are focused on you know what's best for the average patient. As we go forward, it's going to move more and more to personalized care and um, personal forecasting and really algorithm-based care and directed therapy. And so the ability to really have you know data literacy and algorithm literacy is going to be, I think, fundamental to clinical decision-making going forward. I got to tour a specialty pharmacy and look at their custom database that they built based on the, the medication that was, that was chosen. And, and this is, goodness, this is probably over 10 years ago. And there was a interesting um, database they built that if you picked a specific outcome, uh, if, if the patient was feeling nauseated, if the patient um, was feeling tired or whatever decision tree that you picked, then the dropdown would give them uh, additional uh, choices to make. And then when they chose that, there was additional choices to make. And then by that time they had uh, scripted um, the, the most uh, relevant and, and most occurring outcomes at that stage of treatment. And really that was kind of like the beginnings of machine learning and, and artificial intelligence is where that's going. Of course, we jump ahead 10 years and, and think of what we've witnessed because we've all been around for the last 10, you know, 20 years in, in healthcare. We've actually witnessed the beginnings of artificial intelligence and 10 years from now, um, we'll all be here, you know, God blessing us all that we're still here. We're going to witness this next, you know, evolution in it. And I think of the unique challenges around pharmacy in medication specific clinical use cases. Scott, can you give us some examples and in, in what experience that you've had in that? 
Yeah, for sure. One of the unique challenges about the pharmacy medication-specific use cases are really um, understanding the gap between the data sciences and the clinical practice. Um, there is a gap between clinicians who understand the problems, the developers who create the models, and even the administrators who make decisions about which AI solutions to finance. And so if there's a way that we could um, try to bridge that gap, that that would help improve immensely. So even as an informatician, a lot of my responsibility is helping bridge that communication between our clinicians and our development teams um, and try to help close that gap. And the medication specific space is just a very complicated space. Um, there's a lot of room for error or risk and all that is stuff that we've learned in pharmacy school. And the experience and the expertise of understanding medications, their, their side effects, their uh, limitations or when to use them is super helpful in helping build these models or even implementing the models into clinical practice. So what existing models are available and do we have enough data? Do we have enough examples today to, to create this follow through the accuracy enough to apply to pharmacy use cases? Um, I'm wondering about this and I'm thinking of even the hospital space. Can you kind of expand upon that, RC? Yeah, happy to. I would say um, if you are a user of the IBM Micromedic Solutions, you actually have access to AI in your fingertips every day. Uh, so just a, a regular use cases, the uh, use of Ask Watson within the Micromedics application to answer super fast questions like what's the dose of a specific drug? Um, in an adult or a pediatric, um, can you run a drug, ask Watson, what can you run a drug interaction with uh, warfarin and Bactrim? Or we can ask Watson um, on the nursing side to help us with examples of IV compatibility and solution compatibility. And so, um, you know, there's AI built out in so many different ways and applications that people probably don't even realize that that's what they're using at their fingertips. But, you know, we've had a real exciting journey um, with building out our AI in this space, um, creating the nodes, trying to understand all the different ways a pharmacist might ask a question or a nurse might ask a question. And even the nuances of if we wanted to activate that from a uh, to a voice to text, is that possible? and then um, making it just user-friendly and, and part of the workflow. So um, these are, that's, a, that's a very easy um, and readily available example um, that comes to my mind. Um, I'm sure that Whitley has some that may also be applicable in the um, really kind of in that uh, wearables and the, the consumer-friendly space, because I know that's one of her areas of expertise. Especially when you when yeah when you get into consumer healthcare space, I you know an exciting area is is driving behavior change, and so we think of habit forming technology, you know, leveraging the ability to kind of predict what is going to be the most likely for one you know one specific individual uh, to take action. So e even just the decision for instance, of when to send someone a notification um, could actually have, you know, a health impact. If you are trying to <clears throat> send someone a reminder to either, you know, monitor their blood pressure or to, you know, take a medication and you have the ability to understand someone's someone's day-to-day -day routine and know when they're most likely to be available and actually when they see that notification to be able to actually take action or not could be the difference of whether how effective that call to action actually is. And so it becomes extremely nuanced when you think about it because you're trying to determine, you know, how do you actually make an action or event more likely to occur? And that's going to be different for every single person. And that's why, and this is where AI 
I think is, is so great because we are then able to personalize it. And we could never do this with like conventional programming. When you think about having to hard code rules in, you know, saying, you know, we're going to send everyone a message at this specific time, you know, or, you know, with some caveats or, you know, decision trees. Well, you know, if, if this occurs, then we'll, you know, then we'll do this or we'll delay it. Um, and AI can do all of that automatically since it, you know, learns from someone's behavior. So there is, and right now, like this technology is really being leveraged more in the health and, and wellness space. And as we, as we really matures, I think we have the ability to explore, like, how can we impact other health outcomes in this way? Like, how can we truly influence, you know, medication adherence? And how can we create best practices around this? And develop this out into a, you know, a way where even, you know, looking at NLP models and understanding or voice detection, being able to detect the presence of a side effect or the presence of, you know, a potential adverse event or new diagnosis just based on the, you know, tonal quality of someone's voice, patterns that we would never be able to detect, but, you know, potentially AI may be able to pick up. I think of application of artificial intelligence and it's, it's minuscule, it's very small. But when I listen to you, the three of you bringing these ideas, it really starts to expand how it can continuously be used. And it makes me think of the specialty pharmacist that is focused on something very specific. We have the pediatrician pharmacist that's now growing. We have addiction um, uh, pharmacists that are, are really focusing on um, medication management for OUD, opioid usage disorder. We have the pharmacist that's now the informatics and the programming pharmacist. I see the future, including a pharmacist that's focused very specifically on uh, meaningful use of artificial intelligence and embedding that, those creations, those programs, the findings, the research into the digital therapeutics and the wearable space. How, we sh how should we think about applying AI as a profession right now, though? And, and this is... This is really about the now, even though we know what could happen in the future. So, Scott, for example, take a stab at that. What, where are we right now in, in deploying artificial intelligence as a profession? Yeah, for sure. I think as a, as a profession, um, one of the most important things is to think about AI as augmented intelligence, as what was mentioned earlier and you really using the fundamental theorem of informatics of that the computer plus the, the human is better than either one alone. And so how can we create this synergistic relationship um, between technology and people? As, as far as how we apply this now, there's a lot of different areas on the spectrum of machine learning where the pharmacists could have a, a great role. One would be on developing the models. That's more in the data science realm. The other would be with um, validation of those models, giving clinical expertise. There's also the implementation of those models, which is a whole science all in and of itself to um, implement these kinds of technologies. And then there's uh, the monitoring and getting feedback and how do we continuously improve upon the technologies we have. Um, one way that people could get in, involved in this kind of stuff right now would be to look at the things that you do in your everyday job. Like what are some things that are just like really mundane or repetitive that a human could do given the available data as long as they had enough time? And we can look for data and examples. Do we have um, examples of the outcome? Pretty well defined. And then those would be like good candidates for um, a machine learning project, looking at what is the task we're trying to do? Are we trying to predict a yes or no label, a continuous target, like uh, blood pressure or something? Or are we trying to find patterns in the data? And then trying to think about, well, how accurate do these patterns need to be or these predictions need to be? 
And what do we already know about the relationships between the inputs and the outputs? Is it something that's pretty well defined? Then that's something that might lend itself more towards um, using expert rules or programming the logic in ourselves to create the artificial intelligence. Or if we don't really understand the relationship between the inputs and the outputs, that's a great candidate for machine learning and deep learning to pick up on those nuanced things um, that we're just not seeing like uh, Whitley was talking about. RC, I spent eight years in my beginning career in the pharmacy industry um, in business development for pharmacy technology and dealing with institutional pharmacy specifically. And there were many times that the programmers um, at the actual software development team would develop functionality that they thought was really cool or really, um, you know, expanding the capabilities of the platform that had no true use case in the institutional pharmacies or the long-term care pharmacies. And as cool as they thought it was as a programmer, it, it just didn't stick. So I think of that in artificial intelligence. Are we solving the right kind of problems with artificial intelligence today? Gosh, that's a great, um, great observation and, and um, pitch to me over here. On I always like to call myself or introduce myself, especially when I'm in these design sessions with these programmers and with somebody who is a client or a, or a health system or a hospital that's looking to solve a specific problem. And I like to say I'm the clinical voice in the room that will help validate and make sure, A, we're, we're talking the right language. Are we solving for the right problems? Is what we're developing going to actually impact or improve the work efforts of the practitioners that are going to have this in their hands or to the patient who is going to be either interfacing with it or providing their information back into a product? So I think that, um, you know, it, it is so critical to have a practitioner in the room that has both equal capacity to say, what is a clinical workflow? What are we doing today? What are the problems that we need to solve? But also can take that information and interpret it um, and work with a product manager or a developer or a data scientist. Um, in many instances, we find that models are built and um, models are not always accurately representing. And then, um, and so having that client and that the, the end user engagement throughout the entire process from concept through um, really understanding how it'll be applied and then and making sure when you apply it, is the data clear and accurate? We learned that a lot in healthcare that, that you, the, the information is so vast with healthcare that if we if we have to be very narrow in our build oftentimes to make sure we get the most accurate representation. Um, and that's why AI and healthcare is as complex and, and uh, an area of opportunity. Um, and, and I think we're still very early on, even with all the amount of work that's going on these days, I think we're still pretty early on in this in this endeavor um, and have a, a lot of room to go. But having clinicians as part of that design process, it becomes really essential. It's one of my favorite things that I get to do in my job um, and, and being able to contribute in that way. Yeah, if, if you don't mind, I jump in here for a second. I think some really great examples of what Arthi's talking about are, um, one time we had a development group that were all excited that they found that fever was associated with pneumonia and predictive of somebody having pneumonia. And it's like, that's great. We already know that. <laughs> like, that's not terribly helpful. Or um, there is a sepsis predictive model that's getting a lot of press recently um, from Epic. And one organization was trying to validate the model to see how well it actually did at predicting sepsis cases. And it didn't do very well at all. And looking more into like the reasons of why that could have happened, um, came to the conclusion that when they built the model originally, they had used ICD codes. Um, but people familiar with sepsis and coding and stuff know that ICD codes are terrible predictors or terrible labels for um, identifying patients with sepsis. There's other things that we look at, like their heart rate, their temperature, antibiotic usage, 
all sorts of other things. And so like a better definition of the outcome of sepsis would be something like the QSOFA score or the CDC guidelines that they have for identifying sepsis. And um, having clinicians in the room to help define what the outcome is so that it's actually helping our patients um, is super important instead of like, the model was really good at predicting ICD codes, um, but we're, what we're interested in is treating those patients that are sick, not that are coded for um, sepsis. Yeah, to, to add on to that as well, um, you know, there was there was a study too that looked at you know trying to predict what medications uh, a patient would need in an ICU setting, and again, they were you know basing it off of ingredient level drug codes, but then also they were just looking at um, medication and orders or medication orders and not medication uh, dispenses or when a medication was actually administered to a patient. And so in the end, they were able to yeah, predict when um, a prescriber would order a medication, but they weren't actually predicting what medication a patient actually received. And so we have to really think about, you know, does the output of a model match the information that we're really after or you know the information that's going to actually make a difference in patient care this has been one of the most interesting conversations i've had in 12 years of podcasting three pharmacists who are focused on leveraging artificial intelligence technologies i want to give um just a shout out and a thanks to um to ibm watson micromedics team in helping to put this interview together we're kicking off a um, multiple podcast series. So anyone that is listening right now that would like more information, there will be uh, connections in the show notes. We'll put some LinkedIn connections in the show notes. You can always reach out to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. But I want to extend a heartfelt thank you so much to Dr. Nelson, Dr. Yi, and Dr. Bavsar. You have been absolutely so interesting and so incredible to talk to. And I just want to thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for having us. Yeah, it's an honor to be here. Thank you. You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Nation. We're so excited to have this series on artificial intelligence, the application in pharmacy, clinical decision-making. There's more to come. Please stay tuned. Share this podcast with a fellow pharmacist or someone else in healthcare, a physician that you're working with. Collaborative care is so important. We thank you so much for everything that you do, pharmacy.